Um, the scripture on which today's uh, teaching is based comes from Psalm chapter 137. Psalm 137. And I'll be reading from verses 1 through 9. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us, he who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. And this is God's word. Now, we're going to close out on this brief series on the Psalms, these Psalms that teach us how to endure times of difficulty or suffering or distress. And Psalm chapter 137 teaches us how to handle oppression or injustice, our anger, without falling apart, without coming into ruin, without, without corroding in our souls. How do you endure? We're going to look at the passage. And the passage teaches us to, number one, pour out our hearts to God in anger. Number two, to process that anger. Number three, to pray our anger. And number four, It also teaches us where to find the power to control that anger. We're going to look at the passage, and the passage teaches us to pour our hearts out to God, to process our anger, pray our anger, and also gives us the power to control that anger. First, we're going to look at the passage. What actually happened? What's the context? This is a psalm. This psalm is an account from a witness who actually survived the great pillaging of Israel. Israel's capital at the time it was Jerusalem. The witness saw the city ravaged and it was burned, pillaged, almost burned to the ground. Verse 7, tear it down to its foundations. Around 587 B.C., Babylon, the Babylonians came and they sieged Jerusalem and they burned it down pretty much. They pillaged, they killed, they took all the survivors as slaves. And so this psalm is really a recollection of one of the saddest, most painful events in all of Israel's history. And all the while, you got verse 7, the Edomites, they're the neighbors, they're enemies of the Israelites, they, they saw what happened, and when they saw what happened, they just sat there, and they gloated, and they celebrated. So the psalmist, in verse 7, he says, Lord, remember this. They cried, tear down the city, bring it to the ground. This is your city. These are your people. I mean, the psalm is a vengeful psalm. It's a bitter psalm, because on one side, you have enemies that are gloating and mocking the pain of Israel as they're taking them away. And on the other side, verse 9, you have the, the Babylonian army snatching babies right out of their Jewish mother's arms and then smashing them against the rocks. I mean, that's, that's crazy imagery and a weird way to end the psalm. It just shows you how palpable, just how, how painful um, the experience was. Now think about it. there's blood, there are dead children everywhere, there's weeping and mourning, but then on the other side there's gloating and cheering and mocking and laughing. So what happens? There's anger, there's, there's hatred, and there's bitterness. It's palpable. But I'm telling you, 
if you get what this psalm is teaching, it's going to teach you how to deal with your anger and your hatred and your bitterness. It's an ugly psalm, but that's why it's in the Bible. How do you do it? Well, it teaches us four things, right, we said. Four ways uh, that the psalm teaches us how to deal with our anger. One, the first one, the psalmist teaches us to pour our hearts out to God in anger. It begins with verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, when we remembered Jerusalem, the psalmist is recalling what happened. Verses 2 to 5. There on the poplars we hung up our harps. For there our captors asked us for song. Sing us one of the songs of, of Jerusalem, of Zion. How can we sing these songs of the Lord while we're in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget a skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth, he says. Keep in mind, this is a poet. This is a musician. This is a psalm. And so while Israel is being taken away as slaves, these guys over here are gloating and taunting and they're disrespecting. And they're saying, sing about God's faithfulness now. You guys are all slaves. Look at all these dead people. Look at this city burned to the ground. Sing about God's goodness now. Sing about God's love and his faithfulness now. Sing about God's power. What can he do for you? Sing about that now. You see that? And so the writer, verse 2, he's a musician. He's a singer. He says, no, I'm going to hang up my harp. That's what he does. I'm going to stop singing. He says, in fact, I will not forget what happened ever. I will never forget this. If I ever forget, may my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. May I forget how to sing. May I lose my voice. May my right hand forget its skill. May I lose my skill, my ability to pay, play instruments. Verses 8 to 9, he says, someday someone is going to do to you what you did to us. Well, let them take your kids, your infants, your babies, and smash them against the rocks and be glad about it. Wow. That's an emotional, that's emotional language, emotional words. What's going on here? Psalms, they're prayers. This psalmist, rather than turning it against his enemies, the people that he's angry at, he turns to God. Now, this is important for people in the church as much as people outside the church. If you haven't been to church, you got to hear this because this is going to teach you the difference between somebody who's just going to church and someone who's been shaped by the gospel. And for all of you who are in the church, this is about all the things that you try to hide and suppress. you got to listen to this because we don't do this. We don't do this. This psalmist is pouring his heart out. He's not hiding his anger. He's admitting his anger. He's expressing his anger. He's owning that anger, but he's turning it to the Lord. What's he doing? He's, you know, when you hide how you really feel, what you really want to do, you know, that's when you're in the church or outside the church, when you get angry, it's a reflection of what you really believe, what you really want, what really rules you and controls you. In the Western world, we're taught not to express our anger outwardly, not like this. So we sanitize our prayers. You can be really angry and you can be freaking out. But when you pray, you immediately turn and what you do is you sanitize that prayer. When you talk to people in community groups, you don't sit there and express how you really feel about this. You say, I'm frustrated. What are we doing? We're hiding how we really feel. Because it's almost like showing poise and demonstrating poise is more important than actually being honest and coming before God as if God will reward you for acting okay. 
The ancients didn't do that. The ancients, in ancient times, you admitted your anger. In fact, you acted out how you felt. You acted out on the outside how you felt on the inside. The Bible says what? God is an angry God. The ancients, you know, we think we're out of touch when you demonstrate your anger. But the ancients, they felt that you were out of touch when you didn't express your anger. God is an angry God. Yes, God is a merciful God. God is a compassionate God. But God, the Bible says over and over, God is an angry God, and yet he is holy, and yet he is perfect. What that means is it's okay to be angry. Anger in itself is not sin. In the New Testament, Jesus is flipping over tables. He himself is demonstrating anger. The Apostle Paul, one of his entire epistles in the New Testament, an entire book in the New Testament, you practically hear and feel his anger. And yet, the Apostle Paul himself says, in your anger, do not sin. That means that anger and sin are actually two juxtaposed things. They're two different things. In other words, God is not holy because he doesn't ever get angry. God is perfect because he is perfectly able to control that anger, appropriate that anger in a perfect way. He's wise in his anger. He's just in his anger. He's righteous in his anger and the way he expresses it. The Bible says it's appropriate to be angry against betrayal, against oppression, against injustice, against lies, against sin. The Bible says it's okay to do that because that means that in many ways you've been endowed with the wisdom that God has. Right? It's a communicable attribute of God. We actually have some wisdom in our lives. God, we were created in God's image. And so to understand that, hey, this is not the way God intended it to be. To, say, to look at something and say, wow, that's really upsetting because that is not what God wanted. That is not what God desired. If you see a friend who's living waywardly, if you see a friend who's, who's, who's living the opposite way and you get upset about it, you say, that is not the way God intended for you to live. If something gets wrong, it's done to you. You say, that is not the way God intended for, me, for, for us to be. If you've ever been betrayed by your friends, if you've ever been betrayed by anybody, maybe even in your own family, there's feelings, just incredible intense feelings of resentment and anger. That tells you that, yes, you have a good understanding. You have a good understanding of what God intended for his people because God intended justice and faithfulness and righteousness to be a character quality of his people. He did not intend betrayal and oppression and injustice and lies. So to be angry is to say that I understand that there, what sin is. I understand what evil is. That means it's less human if you're not angry at betrayal and oppression and injustice and lies. To not be angry, to, ignore, to not be angry is to ignore sin. It's to ignore brokenness in the world. It's to excuse it. It's to enable it. Because God intended for his people to be just and faithful and righteous, to ignore evil or to not get angry in the face of those things is, an actual, is, is ungodly. Ungodly means that's not, we were created in his image. This psalmist, he sees oppression and he can't stand it. He says, they're gloating. They're gloating. They're saying, sing for us. And he says, I will not sing just to appease them. I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm enslaved now, but I will not sing. I will not just ignore what happened. This is wrong. This is not what's intended. May I lose my voice. May my hands forget how to play these instruments if I ever forget what's happened here. The psalmist is pouring out his pain, but he pours it out to God. It's a prayer. This is a song and a prayer to the Lord. 
But not only, all the while that he's, he's pouring out his heart, secondly, he's processing that anger. Verses 1 through 9, the entirety of the psalm, you actually see their images. You feel the buildup of that anger because you, I mean, you yourself, if you actually read into what's going on, you experience what's actually happening here, and there's a buildup of anger until it crescendos into what? Vengeance? No, there's no vengeance. The psalmist doesn't hide his anger. There's no fake poise to avoid dealing with God and all this, right? Which is what a lot of us do. We try to fake poise, right? When there's some uncomfortable situation or you're angry at somebody, you fake poise. You don't actually address it head on. You don't take it to the Lord. You just suppress it or withdraw from the person or desire to pay them back. You have murderous thoughts in your head, in your brain. In fact, the entire purpose of the psalm is what? It's teaching us to take this anger to God because what anger does here then, if you take that anger to the Lord, it opens a door to an intimacy with God that you did not have before. It opens a new door, uh, a new dimension of intimacy with God. By the way, and this is what I was saying to those of you who've never been to the church before but you're watching, or for those of you who have grown up in the church, just because you go to church, it doesn't mean that you can just do that naturally. A mere religious person buries that anger, suppresses that anger. That means that that anger will be controlled to the best of that person's own ability, but at some point that person will snap because the Bible teaches us that moral restraints can only take you so far. So to the a mere religious person will hide how they feel in a sense because then they don't have to go to God with their anger because they know cognitively what God's going to say. You got to forgive. They know what God's going to say. You got to deal with that anger. So fake poise is really just another way of avoiding God and processing those feelings and those thoughts through his lens, how he views the world about how you really feel about certain things that Actually, if you keep it in there, it's going to destroy you. It's going to ruin you, corrode you, hurt you. But you see, an irreligious person, somebody who doesn't know God, who's, somebody who's, just, who's never been to church, they, pour, they know how to pour out their, their feelings about their anger, but usually it's in the form of gossip, slander, a way to hurt the person. Why? They're taking matters in their own hands. They're avoiding God too. You see, whether you're religious or you're irreligious, you're just taking your anger, you're taking those matters into your hands. It just goes down to the extent that you can suppress it, keep it buried, hidden, or to the extent that you can lash out and hurt the person back in return. Whether you just bury your feelings or express your feelings, in the end, the reasons are all the same. You don't want God to deal with your feelings. You don't want God to deal with your anger. But this writer, it's interesting, he doesn't change his emotions on the outside for God. He goes to God, unleashes his emotions, but then his emotions change. Prayer reminds us who God is, that he's all-powerful, he's all-wise, he's all-hearing. I mean, he knows you. He knows you. He identifies with you. He's compassionate towards you. He has pity how many times have you seen in Scripture, have you ever read the Bible, take pity on me is the prayer. Have pity on me. Show me favor. He empathizes with his people, but he's also the perfect judge. 
And so he is the perfect one to go to, to share everything that's going on in your heart. You know what that means? God can use your anger. God can use your anger to draw you closer to him in a way that will actually shape you and change you. In a way that will uproot all the things that are killing you deep inside and give you new life. You know, when something happens, what's your first instinct? Usually, you know, you go to Instagram, right? Uh, and, but what do you do? You call your friend. And if you have a good friend, if you have a wise friend, if you have a godly friend, they'll say to you, brother or, you know, sister, this is, would you just, it's breaking my heart. But you cannot let that anger rule you because then you've lost yourself then you will really lose yourself. The reason why you want to fight back, the reason why you want to hurt back is because you think by doing that, you're going to find yourself. You're going to become more of yourself. You're going to feel on top again. But it's actually going to hurt you. So let's take a moment. Let's process this together. Let's process this today. A few days later, let's process this again. How are you doing? How are you doing? A week later, let's process this together. Let me pray with you. Let me pray for you. Let's see what scripture, let's, let's hear what the Lord has to say through the Bible. Let's do that. The Bible says, go to God. Go to God like this. Let him be the person you go to. And he will use this to make you more like him because God will teach you to process your anger in light of his power and his wisdom and his love and his justice so that even as you're praying, it's shaping. It's not like it's just some psychological thing that's going on. The Holy Spirit is residing with you. That means that as you're, you're reading the scriptures, the, the Spirit is speaking to you. God is present with you as you are reading his word. He is speaking to you in a sense, right? And prayer then, as he's working on your heart, as he's massaging this into your soul, prayer is, your prayers are shaping the way you respond. And that's what gives this psalmist self-control. How does he pray? That's the third thing. So we talked about going to God, pouring your heart out, processing it, and then praying it out, praying your anger. Number one, nowhere in a text does it say, Please make a way to, so that I can repay this evil. I'm going to hang up my harp and throw up my fist. I'm going to hang up my heart. I'm going to pick up the sword. No, that's not what it says. You know what it says? Verse 7, you remember, O Lord. O Lord, remember. The entire psalm is an appeal to God because he is the ultimate judge, and this psalmist trusts that. When you go before a judge, what do you do? You don't share your plans for revenge to the judge. That's not what you do. What the author does is this. He goes and he says, I'm a witness. So he doesn't, he doesn't pray for revenge. He then acts as a witness. Verses 5 to 6, he says, I haven't forgotten. I've seen everything. I'm a witness. I was there. This is what they said to me. This is what I saw. Please hear me. And so as an eyewitness to the crimes right? Thirdly, he offers his testimony. This is what's happening, Father. God, this is what's happening to me. In fact, he uses the word Lord. It is a very intimate word. It is a very intimate covenantal 
God, you love your people. You love me like your child. You brought me in like your child, and I am just broken by what, what I'm seeing. Your people are just scattered and broken and enslaved and dying and dead. Here is the evidence. There are dead children everywhere. This city is burned to the ground. Exhibit A, verse 7, Jerusalem burned to the ground, and they mocked us. Exhibit B, the Edomites have gloated, and they mocked us. Exhibit C, our infants, verse 9, our infants are dead. They were snatched from their mothers. There are witnesses everywhere. They were grabbed by their feet and thrown against the rocks. And so for what he does, he says, I'm making an appeal. Verse 8, may they get what they deserve. May they know what, it's, what it feels like to lose their own children. He says, may you experience this. Someone will repay you. He's praying to the Lord. He says, you repay. What's the appeal? Verse 7, remember. Remember us. In Hebrew, that word remember, it's a, compl- it's a very nuanced word. It's a covenantal, it's a covenantal commitment to act in favor of the people you love. So when you say, remember us, Lord, you're saying, in your covenantal love for your people, act in favor of us. God is the king, and he's a just king. And so the prayer is for you, the king, you who are just, to remember your people. The psalmist isn't saying, remember us the way, like, hey, remember your wallet before you leave the house. It's the kind of remembering where when your child is sleeping or when he's awake or when he's hungry or when he needs a nap or when he needs to be cleaned or or when he's in pain. It's that kind of remembering where you are there and he's always on your heart and he's always on your mind. It's the kind of remember where you intentionally watch over that child because you love him and you will never abandon. You will stand in the way of a train wreck of a train to save him. God is a king, and he has vowed to remember his people. He has vowed to never abandon his people. So in this psalmist's deepest pain, the saddest pain in his life, the psalmist, he goes to God, he appeals to that love. He appeals to that justice. He knows God is perfectly loving and perfectly just and loving and kind. And he says, rather than, I'm not, rather than taking matters into my own hands, which is always going to lead me to greater pain, greater bitterness, It's never going to heal me. I'm going to go to the ultimate judge as a witness to all the crimes that I've seen. And he says, you love your people. You are the ultimate judge. Do you see what's going on in my house? There's an injustice in my own house. There's an injustice in my workplace. There's an injustice among my friends. There's injustice in betrayal or oppression in my life. And the psalmist is pouring out and he's making an appeal. He says, you see this. You love this. You love your people. He says, you are the ultimate judge. And as the ultimate judge, you see what you see. As only you can, you can do something about this. Please remember us. Do something about this. It takes a certain kind of self-control, you know, to not hide your pain, but to not hide your pain. You see what I'm saying there? It takes a certain kind of self-control to actually be open about your pain, not deflect it, not, you know, wrap, gift wrap it with Christian language to make it look better and prettier, right? Because when you open up, it's just crap inside anyway, right? Not to avenge that pain, but to entrust that pain to real justice, trusting that it will be done. That's wisdom. 
Wisdom is to be able to see beyond what your eyes can see, to see that there is a, a real reality beneath the visible reality that you see. Because only God has the entire picture. He sees the visible reality. He knows the end of the story. He knows the truly real reality. God is a truly three-dimensional picture of all of our lives. And so if, even if there's betrayal, he knows your context, but he also knows the betrayer's context. He, only he sees everything, and only he can truly write everything. He's the perfect judge. But if you take matters into your own hands, what are you doing? You're taking God's right. You're taking his wisdom. You're taking his power, for that matter. You're taking, you're taking his, his role as the judge, the perfect judge, away from him. If you act as the judge, it's only going to make you bitter because you cannot right all the wrongs. You're just so focused on just making this one thing right. If I could just do this, if I can just get that guy, you, I can make it right. But it doesn't, you see, because it never rights all the wrongs. and never restores if something's truly broken, you can throw it away. You can do your best to fix it, but then it's never the same. You can crazy glue it together. It never looks the same. But only God can actually take that brokenness, work through it, and renew it, make it new again. So to demonstrate self-control and to limit your vengeance, your vengeful heart, to be able to admit that vengeful heart and then to limit that vengeful heart. If you truly believe that God himself will avenge that he remembers, <clears throat> otherwise your anger will rule you. And it hurts you. It hurts you physically. I mean, internally, it does. You do that for a long time, it will hurt you. It will ruin you. It will corrode your body. It will corrode your soul. That's why the author of Hebrews the author of Hebrews teaches, do not let, do not harbor a root of bitterness. Because once that bitterness roots inside of you, what it does is it starts to absorb every nutrient and it starts to grow into an oak tree. Is it easier to take uproot something when it's a seed or when it's an oak tree? If God is in control of your life, if he's in control of your situations, if, and he's the judge, and he has the right and the power, you should do everything you do. And by the way, if you've suffered some sort of criminal offense, part of doing what you should do is to seek justice here, in the here and now, for that crime, while still trusting the ultimate justice is in the Lord. A Christian, regardless of what he should do, entrusts the real justice to the Lord. But where do you get the power to do that? How do you do that? Centuries later, in Matthew chapter 27, Jesus is on trial before Pilate. Pilate's like a governor. He's a, he's a ruler. He's a judge. He's like a king, a Roman king. And, and, and Jesus is convicted unjustly. I mean, Jesus was innocent. He was holy. He, and, and so this is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, un injustice in the history of the world. And these soldiers that arrest him, they beat him, and they mocked him, and they crucified him, and they put chains on him, and, and he's placed on a cross. And there, in his deepest sadness, humiliated before the world, stripped completely naked to humiliate him further. And there, in his deepest sadness, as 
he's weeping, as he's crying, as he's bleeding and dying, the crowd around him is doing what? They're cheering and they're mocking. And they said, you know, well, you're supposed to be the king. Why don't you come down? They, they hung up this kind of mockery of a sign that says he's the king of the Jews. And they said, well, you're supposed to be God. Why don't you come down and save yourself then? You're supposed to be God. Why don't you use your hands to, to play your hand, to play your skill? But Jesus remained silent. The entire time he was silent controlling himself. I mean, you really think those nails held him to the cross? If Jesus is who he said he was, you think those nails held him to the cross? The psalmist here says, if I forget, may my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth when on the cross, Jesus cries out, I am thirsty. If you see that phrase translated in many places in the Old Testament, you know what it says? My tongue is stuck to the roof of my mouth. That means Jesus Christ, the ultimate judge, stays silent. The only person who had a right to act. The only person who has a right to avenge. The only person who has seen every injustice done to him fully in 3D remains silent. Why? And the answer is because Jesus didn't come to execute justice, the justice of God for our sins. He came to absorb the justice of God for our sins. He took it all. He paid it all. I mean, if Jesus Christ, if he appealed for justice in that moment, at that moment he says, God, do it, we'd all be dead. We'd all be destroyed. He could have destroyed everyone. But on the cross, Jesus took the suffering that we deserved. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time in the Bible that Jesus does not refer to God as the Father. In other words, Jesus was literally snatched from the Father and sacrificed by the Father and dashed to pieces and bled and died. Why? The Father abandoned him. Jesus Christ was abandoned. He was ultimately abandoned so that we could be ultimately accepted. We could be remembered. Jesus Christ received the justice of God and the silence of God as the judge. He turned his back. Even though Jesus deserved the kindness of God so that we could receive the kindness of God, even though we deserve the silence and the justice of God. The cross is the ultimate injustice in that a holy and perfect God sacrificed himself for his people, a sinful people. And when the moment of that justice came, Jesus chose to absorb it. He had every power to execute that justice, and yet he chose to absorb it. And so he chose to forget our sins so that we could be remembered in his covenantal love. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And yet all the while, do you know, on the cross he was praying? He was praying, appealing before God. And you know what he was appealing? Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Jesus' appeal was for our forgiveness while he was receiving our justice. When you see the cross of Jesus, there's the proof that Jesus will never abandon you. He will always remember he is your advocate. In fact, that word advocate in the New Testament, it's a legal word. He is the ultimate counselor. You just saw 
Um, uh, there's a First uh, John chapter one nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and kind to forget us, forgive us our sins. No, He is faithful and just. Jesus, our advocate, says, "Father, you are just. These people do deserve to die, but I died. I died in their place." And so, not just because you're a loving God, not just because you're a faithful God, not just because you're a forgiving God, but because you are a just God. And an unjust person is the only type of person that would make you be punished twice for the same sin, for the same crime. I've already paid for their crimes. I've already paid the bill. The transaction has been made. It is finished. You are a just God. You will forgive them. He is the perfect advocate. You deserve that justice. But you are spared because of his love. And that's why you get the promise. So when he promises, in the book of Romans, chapter 12, the apostle Paul says, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. We can trust his word. To the degree that you trust that, you can move on. Sometimes that means you can be silent. It is brutal. It is painful. But it won't ruin you. You think it's going to kill you because you just, you just, you're just staying silent because of the gospel. You are taking it to the Lord. You're processing it. You're praying it out in all those movements. But the power is there by God's spirit to move on, to not let that anger ruin you. It's different than just suppressing it. It's an action, an intentional action because of what God is doing in your life. Maybe you can even forgive. We're called to forgive. It's not easy. It's brutal. But it's impossible if God were not in your life working. So root yourself in anger. You will corrode in your sinfulness. You will corrode into ruin. Root yourself then in the justice of God, in Jesus Christ, in the cross. And not only will you find forgiveness, you will find justice as well. And you will find you will find peace. Let's pray together.